0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you've found Deuteronomy chapter 29, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the Word of the Lord by hearing it read together. Deuteronomy chapter 29. We'll begin reading in verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all the Israelites and he said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. During the forty years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reached this place, Sion, king of Heshbon, And Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant, so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders, and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives and the aliens living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water, you are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, And as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm making this covenant with this oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, for caring about us enough to speak to us, to tell us the truth, So that we may know who you are, so it is that we may know how to order our lives and live rightly before you. To receive your blessing and in turn to be a blessing to the world around us. We pray now that you will bless our time together in your word. Make it a transformative time so that we might all be more the people that you have called us to be to do the things you have called us to do. If we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. There are many timeless truths here before us in chapter 29, because obviously it's the inspired Word of God. But I want to look at just two timeless truths this morning from this passage. Timeless truths that when they are believed by God's people of all time, when they are lived out, it truly does lead to blessing for us. And it also leads to blessing to those around us. And, And that's the desire of our heart as a church. Not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing. So let's look at the first of these two timeless truths this morning. And we see them in the first eight verses of chapter 29. Now, for those of you who have who have been here on this long journey through Deuteronomy. Some of you don't know this, but this is our third year in the book of Deuteronomy. And so you realize that nothing new has been said here. There is no new material in these first eight verses. Moses is just saying again what he has already said before. And so here are the people gathered before him in uh, troop formation, And they're hearing what they've already heard in chapter 1, and 2, and 4, and 5, and 7, and 8, and 11, just to mention a few. And so these people have some choices. They can yawn. They can roll their eyes. They can think, oh, we have heard it all before. They can politely indulge a 120-year-old man who was once great, but of course, you know, he's getting a little older, so of course he repeats himself. Now, they can do that, or they can do something better. They can say, why is Moses repeating this again? For those of us who have read it, we could be a little impatient With these verses, we may be tempted to to skim them or to skip over them altogether so we can get on to something new, something that we have not yet heard. But if we, along with the people of Israel, are not impatient, if we don't yawn, if we don't roll our eyes, if we don't tune out, if instead we read the story again, if we savor the story again, even though it's already been said, if we ask why it's here, then the first timeless truth will become apparent to us. And that is that God's people are blessed to retell the stories of the goodness and the greatness and the glory and the grace of God. Hymn number 139 in the hymnal of the little country Presbyterian church where I grew up was, sing them over again to me. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life, over and over again. Now, I will confess that sometimes I call Presbyterians out a little too often. Some of you believe I don't like being Presbyterian, but, but that is not true. Uh, it's, I'm kind of like old money. I've been Presbyterian for 53 years, and I bet other than Bill Simpson, nobody has been Presbyterian for more years. Than me. Raise your hand. Anybody been Presbyterian for more than 53 years? All right, so I win. <laughs> Somebody over here? Do we have a winner? Oh, great, great. So, Oh, good. <laughs> Presbyterian for <free>. you. <laughs> Maybe I should step aside. (laughs) Well, thank you. We are glad you're here. So we know what we're talking about, don't we? We know what we're talking about. And here's what I've noticed about Presbyterians. Sometimes we take a low view of savoring. Savoring. That's to our detriment. We tend to, to like to hit it hard and keep going. We like to be in front of an open theological fire hydrant. Frantically attempting to take in all that's coming at us and constantly asking more, more, more. Some of our hymns have five or six or seven or ten verses, and they're chock full of wonderful theological truth. The problem is that one theological concept, and one after the other, comes at you before you've had time to access or to respond to the one that you have just sung. And that wouldn't be so bad if we also balance this mass of wonderful content with an opportunity To just sit and savor. If we didn't look condescendingly upon those who sing differently. All the dreaded praise chorus. Bless their hearts we say. And you know you're going to insult somebody when you say bless their heart. Bless their heart. They just sing those little choruses the same words over and over and over again. But what's wrong with singing? It is good. It is good. It is good to give thanks to the Lord Most High. Is it not good? Is it not good to sit and savor how good God is and to sing about it over and over and over again? And is it not in line with Scripture? Would we condemn the angels or the heavenly beings for singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Apparently, according to the inspired word of God and the story it tells of the heavenly beings, it's not enough to say God is holy only one time. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul writing about the Lord's Supper. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How wrong we would be to say, oh no, not the bread again. Oh no, not the cup again. Oh no, not that same old story about Jesus' death again. No, sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. It's a timeless truth. That we sing and we tell over and over and over again the stories of the faithfulness of God. And savor even those simple truths. Of course we have balance. Of course we rejoice in the fact that we will never get to the end of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. So we come to the theological fire hydrant. We keep diving in deeper and deeper and deeper into the truths of God, all the while remembering and repeating and sitting and savoring the simple truth, knowing that every time we do, we will remember the Lord. We will remember His past faithfulness. And that past faithfulness, demonstrated and, and repeated over and over again, it gives us strength for today. And bright hope for tomorrow. So live out the timeless truths. Retell the story of God. Tell me the stories. Tell your family the stories. Tell your community group the stories. And when we gather together as God's people. Let's use the verbal space available to us. To talk about and encourage one another. With the stories of the goodness Of the Lord. If we need more encouragement to tell the story again, we can find it in Revelation chapter 12. Would you turn there? It's the very last book in the Bible, in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation written by the Apostle John, a vision that the Lord gave to him, and he recorded it. And so in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, John writes about what he saw. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Their story, the word of their testimony. Not to believe that we have an accuser of our souls is as naive as to believe that there is no God or there is no Christ We have one who would love to see us deny Christ. We have one who would love to see God discard us. To send us out of his presence as Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden. And the flaming swords placed there to block their re-entry into it. We provide our accuser, you and I do, with plenty of ammunition with which to accuse us. If we sat at our table in the courtroom and tried to argue our case against our accuser, we would be absolutely defeated. The evidence against us is too great. On our own, you and I have no reasonable defense. So how will we, this accuser be overcome? How will he be conquered? How will he be defeated by the word of our testimony? And what is your testimony according to Revelation? It's your story. It is your personal attestation, your confirmation that Jesus is real. Just as real as God had shown himself to be to the people of Israel when he parted the Red Sea and provided manna from heaven for them to eat and water from the rock for them to drink. And so you and I simply testify this. We say this to our accuser. Accuser, you are correct. I am absolutely guilty. I am without excuse. And I deserve every punishment that you could suggest. But listen. Listen to this word, this truth to which I testify. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and by faith I am in Christ Jesus. And when the accuser starts to rise to silence the testimony, we say, Sit down, because I'm not finished yet. And we begin to tell over and over again the stories, the testimonies of the faithfulness and the grace of the Lord in our lives. And so when he can't stand it any longer and he jumps to his feet and he says, I object then God, the judge, says, overruled, or better yet, overcome. Overcome, overcome by the word of their testimony. And as the stories go on and on, the accuser slumps at his table to hear once again and again and again the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God proclaimed. See, God intends us, his people, To be victorious in this life. And the way to victory is telling the story of Jesus over and over again. So if you think your story is not important, you're wrong. All the stories of grace of Jesus in your life, they're powerful. So tell them. Really, tell them. Dorm room, living room, I don't care. Tell them without shame. Don't be bored with Moses. Don't yawn, don't roll your eyes, don't see him as an old man repeating the same stories again and again. His words are inspired by God for the benefit of his people, for our blessing, for our encouragement. And as scripture says in Proverbs 11 verse 10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices because it's a timeless truth and we must tell the truth. And savor the stories of Jesus. Tell the gospel stories. We'll be energized together as a family. God will be glorified and the city will be blessed. That's good news, isn't it? Second timeless truth. And that is that the covenant is always contemporary. Look with me again in verse 1. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab in addition to the covenant he made with them at Horeb. Now that phrase in verse 1, in addition to, does not mean that God has now come up with a new covenant, a different one from the one he gave them at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments referred to here as Mount Horeb. God has not done that. It is one and the same covenant. The point is that this same covenant must now be accepted by this generation as it was the generation who came before them because God's covenant is always contemporary and every generation must renew it, every generation must confirm it. The people who confirmed it at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, are now mostly all dead. Moses is alive, but But about the time he finishes the passage we're reading today, he himself was going to die. And only Joshua and Caleb, and only those who were 20 years old or younger when they started their wandering in the desert for 40 years, and probably the Levites, they were the only ones who were present when the first covenant was ratified. And so now this generation must say yes to the covenant, and that's the second timeless truth. God's covenant the one that we now refer to as the New Covenant or the New Testament, must be renewed by each generation. And this timeless truth is what inspires the old saying that God doesn't have grandchildren. God does not have grandchildren. Everyone and every generation must come to terms with God. Look again in verses 10 through 15. I'm going to read those again. And and listen to how personal the words are. Moses says, All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God. Your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel together with your children and wives, foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order... To enter into a covenant with the Lord, your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing today here with us in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. Very personal, isn't it? Every generation is responsible before the Lord. The parents had their day. The grandparents had their day. And now it's this generation's turn. It's not only their turn. Moses also looks forward to those who will come after them. When he says in verse 15, All those who are not here today. He doesn't mean that some weren't there because they were sick in the tent. You know, they just couldn't get up. He doesn't mean that they packed up and they took the weekend to tailgate at the college football game and did not make it back in time for the assembly. Shall I repeat that? That's not what Moses is referring to. Moses is referring to those who have not yet been born because the covenant is always contemporary. Those who are born after this generation, they will have to stand in the presence of the Lord. They will have to affirm their faith in Him. And so that's what we see in these verses, the timelessness of it. Abraham and his generation, Isaac and his generation, Jacob and his generation, Moses, and the generation who left Egypt. Now this generation all have to, con- to confirm the, the covenant of the Lord. And each generation has to live out the covenant in the context of other cultures, other worldviews, appealing worldviews, seemingly successful worldviews. The Lord is not ignorant of the power of the draw of what people will see when they pass through the nations of the promised land. Look in verse 16. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of the other nations. See, these idols are detestable to God. Because God knows that the idols are meaningless. He knows that they are powerless. They cannot help anyone in this life or to the life to come. They will only lead to death. So he detests them for the lie that they are and the deception they are to people. But those idols were not detestable to the people who were worshiping before them, they were appealing. Think about the promised land for just a minute. It's a land that's already flowing with milk and honey. Already. It produces so much agriculture that the cows there are really fat, and they're really happy, and the goats are, and so the land is flowing with the milk that they produce and the meat that they provide. There is so much lush vegetation in the promised land that the bees can go to all those flowers and make honey, so the land is flowing with honey. Honey. It is like a paradise. The promised land is not like one of our northern rust belt cities. You know, where where most of the population has moved away. Businesses are boarded up. Houses are abandoned. There's economic depression. Even a little emotional depression by those who are left behind not much that would attract us to those cities. Instead, we flee from them. The promised land is more like Charleston. What are we called? The darling city of the South, right? How many times have we been voted number one city in America? 43 people a day move to the area. More than 25,000 new jobs are forecast for this region by the year 2020. We have seen 58% increase in millennials moving to this city, more than any other, higher than Nashville, Denver, Austin, or the top-ranking city of Houston, right? Charleston is a great place to be, and people move here because they want to be part of what's going on here, to do what we do because they think, well, hey, it must be working in the darling city of the south. Well, such was the promised land. Before the Israelites got there, the 12 men who went to explore the land, they discovered healthy, strong people living there. The cluster of grapes they brought out was so large that two men had to carry it on a pole between them. And so picture the Israelites entering this land after 400 years of slavery and 40 years in the desert. Yes, God provided them for them in those 40 years, but it was kind of a a deprived or or minimalistic sort of way. Look in verses 5 and 6. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out. Nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. Now, ladies, come on. Forty years, no new clothes. Forty years, no new shoes. Hey, that their husbands will get rid of the 40-year-old clothes in the closet they keep wearing. So we're not as crushed by that, men. But, you know, you, you get to a man through his stomach, so there's something here for us. Imagined. 40 years no fresh baked bread. Zip nada. Just manna. Only water to drink, no piping hot coffee, no full-bodied wine. Nothing. So yes, God's people were kept alive, but in a minimalistic sort of way. And so surely, <laughs> when the Israelites enter the promised land, it's a bit like Jed and the Clampett family rolling up to their Beverly Hills mansion. And the Israelites are going to look around at the promised land and how lush it is. And they're going to look at the cities they didn't build and the houses they didn't build. And they're going to look at the vineyards, the grape vineyards and the olive groves. And they're going to see the lushness and they're going to wonder about how all that prosperity came to be. And perhaps they would conclude that maybe the gods of those people provided it all for them. And maybe God's people would start to emulate them. You know, down at your clothes, your shoes, they're 40 years old, and you might conclude that your God might not be the best provider for you. Of course they had seen mighty miracles. God's provision, but it had been minimalistic. But God has a purpose for that. Look also in verse 6. God did it so that you might know that I am the Lord, your God. And now we're almost through. But what God was doing in those years is instilling a worldview for his people. He is God. They are not God. Because he's God, he can provide for them in the desert. Because he is God, he can deprive them in the desert. And this is the worldview with which they must enter the promised land. God is God. The one and only. He is their protector. He is their provider. And with that, wor- that world view, they have to interpret everything they're going to see around them. The lushness. The success of the cities. They don't get all that by emulating what the culture around them does. After all, this culture is about to lose everything. God's people will thrive and flourish by faithful obedience to the covenant. In the midst of every culture in which they find themselves. Look in verse 9. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. And so it is for every generation. We come down to ourselves in Hebrews chapter 1.1. In the past, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. The Lord is still contemporary, is He not? Sustaining, present, active, tense, there is the Lord, presence with us, present with us, always contemporary. And God's people, you and I, have always had to apply the covenant in the setting of other cultures of anti-biblical. Much written about Christ and culture now. Courses on it here. A year ago, Christian class was full every day. The truth, Scripture interacts and impacts our culture. We just have to remember that we're not the first ones to consider this topic. This is a well-worn path. God's truth has never found an unopposed resting place in this world. Nor will it ever. Nor is it intended to. When nations haven't opposed it, individuals have. It's always the nature of the gospel to confront in every generation until Christ returns. And so here are the challenges for us, and then we're done. The challenge will always be how to live as God's people in a culture that does not believe in or obey God. The challenge will sometimes be how to live in a culture that is so alluring and it's so appealing, and you know it is. You know how our culture pulls at us. The challenge will be not to succumb to the lie that life without God is somehow better than life with God. The challenge will always be how to hold fast when it appears that doing so, clinging to Christ, makes us look like losers or antiquated or out of touch. It's not the truth. The gospel is always relevant. The challenge will always be how to gain ground with the gospel in each generation. We're in this defeatist mode. Oh, Lord, we just don't don't want to lose ground. No, our goal should be, Lord, how can we gain ground? And so this is the timeless truth. People in every generation must say yes to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now we've come full circle. Back to the first timeless truth. How will people do that? They'll do it when you and I tell the story over and over and over again. Generation after generation after generation. So that people by faith receive Christ and enter into a relationship with Him. Or in sinful rebellion deny Him and live for idols made of silver and gold. And so here's the choice and it's before every one of us. Today, because this is our generation. It's the decision that we must make. Will we ratify the covenant? Will we by faith say yes to Christ? I pray that it may be so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Father, we thank you that those who have gone before us were faithful to tell the stories of Jesus over and over again. Father, all of us who are believers here this morning, we're here because someone faithfully told the good news of the gospel to us. So we thank you for them. Father, I pray that we would now take up our places in our generation to do the same. That we would... First, have eyes to see your work around us. Lord, sometimes I, I think your people, myself included, we're not even looking for you. And so our eyes aren't trained to see, oh, here is God's grace. Here is God's faithfulness. We take things for granted. We don't credit you with all that you do for us. And so every time we do that, Lord, there's a, a story missed an opportunity to tell others of your goodness and your grace. So give us eyes to see how very present you are and minds and hearts to understand that this is your work and help us tell the story over and over again. Lord, we pray that we in this generation, right here in Charleston, that we will gain ground for the gospel, not lose it, but that we will move forward and because we are here in this place, the city becomes more holy and more righteous and more in love with Jesus. For We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.